Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Hi, I'm Karina Bemisterfer, host of Morning Cup of Murder, your daily true crime podcast. Yes, you heard me right. Daily true crime. Every day, Morning Cup of Murder tells you a straightforward, short-form story about murder, true crime, cold cases, disappearances, serial killers, cults, and more. And I do that all in under 15 minutes. With over three years of stories and over 20 million downloads, the Morning Cup of Murder podcast has become a staple of so many people's daily routines. So why not add it to yours? Stream Morning Cup of Murder everywhere you listen to podcasts, and remember, stay safe. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of Murder. The older the crime, the harder it is to prove. On October 26, 1440 a man was executed for crimes that, in some opinions, more than warranted a death sentence, and in the opinions of others, might just not have happened at all. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Gilles de Ray was born on an unknown date sometime in 1406 inside the family castle at the Champs-Passé-sur-Loire. As a member of the House of Montmorency-Laval, and after the deaths of both his mother and father, he and his brother were placed under the tutelage of their maternal grandfather, Jean de Croan. When Gilles was just 12 years old, his grandfather attempted to arrange the marriage between he and one of the richest heiresses in Normandy, who just happened to be four years old at the time. And when that fell through, he tried and failed again to pair him off with the niece of the Duke of Brittany. Finally getting it right, Gilles was married off to Catherine de Thouars of Brittany, another heiress. Their fortune was increased greatly, and together, the pair had their one child, Marie, in either 1433 or 1435. Earning the favor of the Duke of Brittany, Gilles was admitted to the French court, and from 1427 to 1435, he served as a commander in the French army, fought alongside Joan of Arc, proved his bravery during the renewal of the Hundred Years' War, and was appointed as the Marshal of France. While all of his success was happening, in November of 1432, just before Gilles withdrew from both the army and the public eye, his grandfather, the man who raised him, passed away. And as a way to publicly show off his displeasure with his grandson's reckless spending, chose to leave his sword and breastplate to Gilles' younger brother rather than him. Now out of the military, Gilles began pursuing other interests, and before long, 
began the preliminary work on the Chapel of the Holy Innocents, where he officiated in robes of his own design, as well as a theatrical production called Les Mystères du Siege d'Orléans, which consisted of more than 20,000 lines of verse, 150 speaking parts, and 500 ensemble members. By the time the production began, and even long before, Jill was almost bankrupt and began selling properties left and right in order to support his extravagant lifestyle. By 1433, all he had were two estates and two castles, and half of all the total sales and mortgages was spent on his play. First performed on May 8, 1435, a total of 600 costumes were constructed, worn for the one performance, and then thrown away so new pieces could be constructed for any subsequent showings. And unlimited food and drink were made available to the audience members at Gilles' own expense. It seemed that his grandfather was right to worry about Gilles' spending, and by June of 1435, family members gathered to try and put an end to the opulence. Appealing to Pope Eugene IV and asking him to disavow Gilles' Chapel of the Holy Innocents, to which he refused, they went to the king and on July 2nd, 1435, a royal edict was proclaimed in a few of the French territories denouncing Gilles de Ray as a spendthrift and forbidding him from selling any more of his properties. He forbade any of his subjects from entering a contract with the man and made sure those already in command of his castles did not dispose of them. As a result, Gilles' credit fell immediately and collectors started hounding him to pay back his debts. And by September of that same year, he was forced to leave Orleans and leave behind a number of his precious items. However, because the king's edict did not apply to Brittany, Gilles made his way there and was just out of reach of the family who attempted to keep his spending in check. Here is where things start getting a little weird. In 1438, Gilles sent priest Eustache Blanchet out to find any individuals who knew about alchemy and demon summoning. He contacted an acquaintance and cleric, Francois Perlati, in Florence, and persuaded him to come take service with Gilles de Ray. Having reviewed Francois's magical books, Gilles started experimenting with summoning and attempting to contact a demon named Baron, and provide a contract with the creature for riches that Francois was to deliver on a later date. After three attempts, the demon never materialized, and frustrations started to grow. Francois told them that Baron was angry and required an offering that included body parts of a human child. Gilles readily provided the pieces in glass vessels, but even with the offering, the demon never appeared. Left angry over the failure, Gilles' funds were now severely depleted. Now, clerics, demons, and summonings aside, where did Gilles get those body parts, and how was he able to get them so easily? You see, while most of the world knew Gilles de Ray for his achievements, and maybe even his wild spending habits, when spoken about in more modern times, it seems that all of those things were eclipsed by the revelation that, beginning between 1432 and 1433, long before all of this demon summoning, Gilles de Ray committed more than a hundred gruesome child murders in a secret rampage that, if accurate, made him the first serial killer in recorded history. Though he killed while still living in the Champs-Posay-Sur-Loire, no accounts of the crime survived, so the first documented case of abduction and murder came after his move to Moshkul 
and involved a 12-year-old boy referred to only by his last name, Judon. An apprentice to a furrier, Gilles' cousins asked the man to lend them the boy to take a message to Mashkul. The boy never returned, and none of the men knew exactly what happened, but suggested that he might have been taken by some thieves during his travels. According to the 1971 biography by Jean Benedetti, the children, mostly young boys, were lured into Gilles' home and pampered with expensive things like clothing and extravagant foods. After an evening of drinking Hippocras, a spiced wine that acted as a stimulant, the boy was then taken to another room where only Gilles and his inner circle were allowed. Once the doors closed, Gilles' true intentions were revealed, and with the help of a bodyguard slash accomplice, the boy would be stripped naked and hung on the ropes with a hook dangling from the ceiling. Gilles then masturbated onto the child, and if they were a boy, he would then touch their genitals until satisfied, pull the child down, and then start to comfort them. Claiming he only wanted to, quote, play with them, he would then wait a moment and then either kill the child himself or have his cousin, Gilles de Sely, or the bodyguard take their lives. Either way, their throats were slit, they were decapitated, dismembered, or next snapped with a stick, after which Gilles would sometimes sodomize their bodies before burning them in the fireplace. With the last recorded murder taking place sometime in 1440, Gilles' secret life of crime came to an end when a violent dispute took place between him and a clergyman. Kidnapping a cleric, the act prompted an investigation by the bishop, and when he found evidence of the horrific crimes, he released his findings and obtained the prosecutorial cooperation of the Duke of Brittany. Gilles de Ray and his bodyguards were all arrested on September 5th, 1440, and when the trial began, parents of missing children in all of the surrounding areas gathered to testify against him. On October 21st, 1440, he confessed to his crimes, and all plans to torture a confession out of him were officially canceled. He was sentenced to death on October 25th, and the very next day was hanged while the platform he stood upon was set ablaze. Before he could burn, his body was claimed by, quote, four ladies of high rank and buried. Though his true number of victims remains impossible to know, experts have placed the number somewhere between 100 and 200. Though some even go as far as to say 600, their ages range from just 6 to 18 years old. Though many accept his guilt, citing his confession in court, some believe that he was an innocent victim of an ecclesiastic plot or an act of revenge by either the Catholic Church or the French state. Backing this claim, many cite the fact that the Duke of Brittany, who was given the authority to prosecute, received all of Gilles' former titles and lands after his execution. Some point to his unique beliefs, claiming the trial was a witch hunt of sorts, while others say that the threat of torture was enough to make him confess regardless of his guilt. With no tangible evidence to back the claims, there are some who don't think he killed at all. Which is why some sources cite him as the world's first serial killer, and others do not. In fact, in 1992, a retrial for the long-dead man was held, composed of various experts, and working with the same evidence the courts did back in 1440. When they came back, they delivered a verdict of not guilty. 
However, it was later revealed that none of the participants sought the professional advice of medievalists during the proceedings. Whether Gilles de Ray was the victim of a medieval witch hunt or really a cold-blooded killer remains a mystery even today. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to a terrible thing happened on October 27th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know if you liked it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.